You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 6th of December 2023 on Monocle Radio. Has the world chosen to look away from the sexual violence of Hamas? Why is the UAE rolling out the red carpet for a wanted war crime suspect? And Time magazine reveals its person of the year. And this will be a fun week for Time's social media team. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Yossi Meckelberg and Melissa Fung will discuss the day's big stories and our On This Day historical series will recall the most infamous water polo match ever staged. Perhaps not a hotly contested title, but still. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller, and I am joined today by Yossi Meckelberg, Associate Fellow at Chatham House and a lecturer in international relations at the University of Roehampton, and by Melissa Fung, the journalist, filmmaker and author, most recently of Between Good and Evil, The Stolen Girls of Boko Haram. Hello to you both. Hello. Hello. Um, We will hear more from you both very shortly, but first to the United States, where the first war crimes charges have been filed over offences allegedly committed amid Russia's war in Ukraine. Four Russian citizens are accused of the torture and unlawful detention of an American. I'm joined with more on this by Monocle's Washington DC correspondent Chris Chermak. And Chris, to clarify, these are the first war crimes charges filed in this conflict by the US Department of Justice. What do we know about the details of the case? So, Andrew, as you said, these are charges filed against four. I should say we don't even know necessarily if they're Russian, although we assume they they described as four Russia-affiliated military personnel. They could have been part of the Russian military. They could have also been part of the Donetsk militia. Um, and this relates to, uh, in this case, an American citizen who, according to these charges, was kidnapped, unlawfully confined for 10 days back in April 2022. This uh, the indictment goes into really quite graphic detail about what happened to this person who is unnamed, this U.S. citizen, in terms of the torture uh, that that happened from these four individuals, uh, threatening with execution, uh, various things along those lines. So it's really quite a graphic detail of what happened. And yes, it is the first time that the U.S. has. Uh, has indicted anybody. They don't have these people in custody. We don't frankly know too much about them, except that there are two commanders who are named and two lower level lower level soldiers. They are not in U.S. custody. They won't be tra- they won't be able in that sense to be brought to justice by the U.S. But it is part of America's effort. Um, along with Ukraine, to hold Russia accountable for war crimes committed in Ukraine. Do we know or have they made it clear what jurisdiction they are claiming here? Because very obviously these crimes, well, these alleged crimes, did not take place on U.S. soil. 
Yes, that's right. Well, and and it should be added to that, obviously, that uh, the U.S., uh, as many people will know, is not part of the International Criminal Court, uh, which is also looking into war war crimes committed by Russians. What the U.S. is doing here, and it is the first time that is using a U.S. statute that was passed back in 1996, around the time, just a little before the International Criminal Court was founded, that allows the U.S. to bring charges in American courts for war crimes committed against Americans. So there is a limiting factor here. They could not bring war crimes against just anybody, um, but they could can bring war crimes as they have in this case because an American citizen was involved. That's what this relates to. But beyond that, as I say, the U.S. has also set up a war crimes accountability team. That's what the U.S. Justice Department is using in order to process prosecute these four individuals back when this was started in 2022 in order to, pro- to to look into war crimes in Ukraine. They referred back to the Nuremberg trials, prosecuting of Nazis after the Second World War. So that gives you a sense of just how unprecedented even the U.S. involvement in something like this is. But as I say, in this case, they do feel that given a U.S. citizen was involved, this is something they can do specifically in the U.S. courts, as opposed to all the other things they're doing, trying to help Ukrainians gather evidence for their own cases, whether in Ukraine or the International Criminal Court. Well, we will, of course, be following that story with interest. Chris Chermak in Washington, D.C., thank you for joining us. We'll bring in our panel now, Yossi Meckelberg and Melissa Fung. And there is a case that the swiftness and severity of Israel's response to October 7th somewhat occluded understanding of the full horror of what Hamas perpetrated on that date. Since then, Israel has been working hard to remind global opinion of the brutality of Hamas's rampage, holding screenings of footage of the day, much of it shot by Hamas themselves, and now presenting to the UN details of the sexual violence committed against Israeli women on October 7th. Um, Yossi, first of all, is is there a feeling in Israel that there has been a sort of conspiracy of silence about this particular aspect of October 7th, that people are not wanting to acknowledge Hamas's specific assaults on Israeli women? I think that's that's the general feeling in Israel right now. Generally, it's as time goes by two months later because the, more and more the focus is on what Israel, how it operates in Gaza. There is a fear for how it all started. And in the Israeli psyche right now, almost what happened 7th of October justify everything that follows this in the next year and then say, you're forgetting how it all started. And I think especially in, on, on this, in, in your excellent uh, article, Melissa, it's the way that people are, are, are actually, where is the United Nations in all of them? There is, there is so much evidence. There is a very difficult to watch 43 minute uh, footage of what happened on 7th of October, taking most of it from cameras, body cameras mm-hmm. from, from Hamas. Uh, militant stories, call them what, whatever, but there is the evidence is, is there. Now, one of the problems is there, from for forensic point of view, it was very difficult to collect a lot of, of the details that needed in order to put these people to justice. However, there is the evidence that there were rape, mutilation, you know, the really horror of, of war, and the United Nations should have, and other women organizations should have responded much quicker. The feeling in Israel, which works on any way, the feeling that Israel, which is kind of ingrained in the Israeli society, even if it's not necessarily true, that the world is against them. So this 
adds to that. Uh, Melissa, as Yossi has intimated there, you have been writing about this. How do you see it? Is there a some sort of unwillingness to look at the details in this respect of this particular event? Or do you perceive a general, just possibly just visceral squeamishness people have when it comes to discussing uh, the facts of this kind of attack? Andrew, I think this stuff is really hard to talk about. I think survivors and witnesses, it's so traumatic, sexual and gender-based crimes is still a, a topic that is taboo in a lot of places. You know, it's now only coming out that Russian soldiers, you know, mm. are raping their way through Ukraine. And the UN did finally release a report earlier this fall um, detailing some horrific abuses, an 83-year-old woman being raped, you know, a 13-year-old girl being raped. And it's it's been really hard, you know, according to the people who wrote the report, for survivors to actually tell these stories because in a lot of cases, you know, um, religion, culture, talking about sex is, is very, very difficult. And especially, you know, when there's still a lot of shame and stigma attached to survivors. And so part of it may be you know, playing into why it took so long for these crimes that Hamas committed against Israeli women to be acknowledged. But, you know, I, I think I think the fact that UN has finally released a statement that they are investigating, they're looking into it, um, you know, it's better, better late than never. But, but just to follow that up, Melissa, is there also a problem in communicating the nature of the attacks that... A, a lot of people, I, I think, even if they can bring themselves to read the full details, which is, is, is not always an easy read, still find it literally unimaginable. And like a, a couple of the examples you related there about Russian attacks on Ukrainian women, I, I think there's a there's just a general, just complete, it is, I mean, it's, it's kind of a failure of imagination, but perhaps an understandable one. I think what you what you said earlier, a squeamishness, that mm. these crimes are so heinous that it's hard to imagine that, that, that they've been committed. You know, some of the details in the Hamas attacks, mutilation, you know, necrophilia. I mean, it's really the worst of humanity. And maybe to stare at it is hard for a lot of people. Isn't the, isn't the case in, in 2023 that actually not the victims are the one that should hide, or the countries of this one that should have the stigma and, and, and the shame. And we still this is the situation that people are afraid to tell that there were so, such heinous crimes. And I think there is another element. There are still women kept hostage by Hamas. When this comes out, just imagine what the family think, what they are going through while they are still in captivity. And maybe it's... a so that failure that women or any victims of, of war crimes or any crime don't feel that there is the space there for them to come and not be judged and not be suspected, you know, you contributed to do it. It's something that, you know, the feeling, the false feeling that it's you actually should be ashamed instead of, of those who committed the crime, which I think it's a bigger failure of society. I think it's really hard because as a woman, I have some experience in this, 
you know, what happened to me in Afghanistan. And it took a long time for me to be able to acknowledge that. In fact, when I was first um, interviewed by the RCMP after I was released from captivity, I, you know, they asked me straight out if I had been sexually assaulted. And I said no, because it still felt like admitting it to a man who asks you that mm. still felt like a bit of a violation at that point. And so we haven't maybe developed the proper tools for survivors to feel safe coming forward. And if, you know, if it took me years to acknowledge what happened to me, you know, and I'm in a very privileged position as a Western journalist, what about, you know, an Israeli woman who lives in a kibbutz who, you know, her her life is has been going along quite normally. She's not put herself at any risk of this happening to her. You know, what about, if I have that problem, what about girls who have been kidnapped by Boko Haram, right, who have no agency, who feel like they have no voice at all? And so that just speaks to how hard this is still to talk about. And maybe we need to turn it around, like Yossi said, empower survivors to tell their stories. It's not their fault, right? And if we can do that, then maybe we can remove the the shame and the stigma. Uh, just finally, Melissa, I, I, I would like to commend listeners to to read what you have been writing about this uh, this week. Where can we find it? It's Canada's Globe and Mail. Okay, so so if they just search for you search on the Globe for and me Mail, on the Globe and Mail, it'll be right there. Yeah. Um, well, we move. We will move along from that, and we will look at the peregrinations of President Vladimir Putin of Russia. He has not been getting out much these last couple of years. A combination of invitations drying up and prudent hesitation to leave one's post during a moment of tumult. History does not lack, for examples, of beleaguered demagogues chancing a foreign trip and getting the locks changed in their absence. All of which is to say nothing of the warrant for his arrest issued by the ICC. Putin has nevertheless descended today upon Abu Dhabi for a swift visit to the United Arab Emirates before pushing on to Saudi Arabia. Um, Yossi, between this day trip to the Middle East uh, and the fact that he is tomorrow hosting in Moscow President Ibrahim Raisi uh, of Iran, what is he up to here? I think a... When you say it's a day trip, it's the fact, yeah, I don't want to be too long, too far from Moscow. I have my enemies at home. I have my enemies not at home abroad. I better, you know, keep up with what's happening. But at the same time, he feels that the Middle East is escaping, a bit running away from him, while China is playing a significant role. The United States is, is back there, and he tried to consolidate his position there vis-a-vis -vis, and the good relation between the UAE and, 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 and Russia, when it comes to trade, a good relation when it comes to, for instance, drones are sold from, from mm -hmm. Iran, missiles, and uh, uh, air defense missiles from, from Russia, both to Iran and, and Syria. So it needs to consolidate the position of Russia when, as you said, he has very few friends left in the, in the international community around the world. And at the same time, uh, the, 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 the ICC warned against him is something that 
for instance, he, he decided not to go to, to South Africa earlier this year because at one point or another it might catch up with him. But it doesn't mean the interest of Russia. Russia is on the, on, on the borders of the Middle East. So to consolidate vis-a-vis the other powers there is significant. Uh, Melissa, for all the brevity of this trip, uh, nevertheless, it does strike that these meetings could have been Zoom calls from one end of his weird long table. There is an element of theatre here, isn't there? He is demonstrating, you know, I'm, I'm not a complete troglodyte. I am allowed out a little bit. I think that's really true. You know, when he arrived in Abu Dhabi, his limousine drove through a sprawling palace flanked with camels and Arabian horses with Russian flags. He, I think much of this is theater. He wants to project that he's not the pariah we in the West make him out to be for his war on Ukraine. Um, and, you know, some of that might be true. If you look at the global South, you know, Russia is not an enemy. Russia is an ally more more than the United States is. And so I think he's trying to remind us that, you know, he still has friends. Um, also, there's the, the thing that intrigues me about this, Yossi, is not so much the visit to Saudi Arabia. There's a, there's a well-known kind of fellow feeling between Moscow and Riyadh, and certainly Vladimir Putin and uh, Prince Mohammed bin Salman have broadly similar views on a lot of subjects, press freedom most obviously. But why does the United Arab Emirates want to be seen with Vladimir Putin? Again, looking at it the other way, they could have said to him, yeah, this meeting could be an email. We don't really want the hassle. Uh, but nonetheless, they, they have welcomed him to Abu Dhabi. And bear in mind, it's the COP28. Mm-hmm. So the idea that is, we are playing. <coughs> if you think of, for instance, the role of countries like Qatar and the Emirates, those are small places, but that see themselves as, as, as world and global actors. And by being actually able to talk to everyone, they actually argue exactly the opposite. You're in the West, you talk only to certain people. We are capable of talking to everyone. For instance, like Qatar, we can talk to the Israelis and American, we can talk to Hamas, the Emirates. We can talk to the West, but we can talk to Putin in China as well. And in Saudi Arabia, if we need China to negotiate our uh, resumption of relations with, with Iran, we are capable, but because we open our channels more than you in the West. So there is, a, there is some logic in that. Nevertheless, though, Melissa, and just finally on this, are the optics jarring in that, on the one hand, you are hosting COP28, the great climate summit in which we discuss how to build the world a sustainable future, which, in credit to the Emirates, is something they do take very seriously. I've I've met Emiratis who work in sustainable energy. They have all said, you know, we are not stupid. We do understand that fossil fuels are not the future. We want to be very much part of whatever the future turns out to be. So on the one hand, you would think that is a good press thing, hosting COP28, why would you wave Vladimir Putin into the middle of that news cycle? You know, I think it's what Yossi said. You know, they want to be seen as being able to talk to everybody, that they are welcoming. You know, the states is not. They won't talk to this person. They won't now talk to that person. But, you know, we can be um, a, a mediator that way. We can wade into every conflict and perhaps play a role that's sort of punching above their weight, I think.
Okay, well, we will look now at the United Kingdom, where the ongoing inquiry into the government's handling of the COVID-19 pandemic has been hearing from the person principally responsible, i.e. Boris Johnson, Prime Minister of that period. After greatly enhancing the national gaiety by swearing to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the etc., Johnson arranged his hair into the particular dishevelment he deploys to communicate penitent anguish and attempted to explain himself. It's something to do with the app going down and then uh, coming up again, um, but somehow uh, not automatically erasing all the things uh, between that date when, when it went down and the moment when it was last backed up. Um, Melissa, as my colleagues here at Monocle Radio will wearily attest, far be it from me to mock or deride anybody else for being somewhat baffled by aspects of modern communications technology. I mean, at least Boris Johnson has tried to use WhatsApp, which I still never actually have. But it's it's not necessarily reassuring hearing from somebody who was Prime Minister at a moment of terrible national crisis speaking in those tones. I I couldn't really understand what he was trying to communicate. There, Welcome Andrew. to the United Kingdom, <laughs> Melissa. <laughs> no, truly, um, you know, I did hear his apology mm-hmm. earlier and wasn't sure that I could take it seriously, mm. to be honest, after everything that's, you know, come out. And Yossi, your impression of Boris Johnson, and to be clear, I don't mean we actually, actually, I, I, I don't know, can can you do a Boris Johnson? Don't, 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 just don't do that. Um, what did you make of his performance? I, I mean, the, the, the best impression is to use a lot of words that mean very little. Is the best impression of Boris Johnson. It's a kind of it's a technique. I, I use a lot of words and I try to make an impression that I'm very smart, but I said absolutely nothing in, 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 in a full inquiry. He used to use it very effectively at Prime Minister question time, and then he said, what's the content of what he was saying? But he still won an election exactly four mm-hmm. years ago with a majority of 80. That is still the legacy. That's why we don't have a fresh election. And, is history. Politically, is history. That's why he's, he's going to make a lot of money in the media right now, because he knows he's go- not, not, not coming back, in, or at least we know that he's not coming back into politics. But yes, I think it's the lack of sincerity. Someone that lied to Parliament time mm-hmm. and again about almost everything. And uh, then, is this a sincere apology? Hardly. Uh, Melissa, despite all that, um, I am going to do the currently unfashionable thing of extending a very small measure of sympathy for Boris Johnson. He he, is try- he has tried to make the point elsewhere in his testimony, and he is not necessarily wrong that th- in this regard, as in all others, life is experienced forwards and then understood backwards. He, he's tried to make the case that we were having to make decisions with imperfect information in a fast-moving situation. Are we untowardly hostile towards people who have been in these positions at moments of crisis and have, as people will, uh, got things wrong? I think you're being generous, Andrew, <laughs> I, I mean, I, you know, no, no leader during COVID will say that they did everything perfectly. I think everybody will admit that they could have done something differently, mm. right? But Boris Johnson will be remembered for allowing 
old people to die, mm-hmm. sacrificing them. He will be remembered for Partygate, holding holding par- office parties when the rest of us were in lockdown. Um, and, you know, it's really hard to hear him. I I know there, there are protesters, family members mm-hmm. of those who, who suffered and died as a result. I feel their pain more because nothing he can say now, no apology is going to bring their loved one back. A, a thing that baffles me still about that period when I think about it, Yossi, and I do hope the inquiry will get properly into this and we do actually get some proper answers, though if the person to whom we are putting the questions is Boris Johnson, that is unlikely, is that he led a government whose whole thing had been about controlling borders. Uh, And they were presented not merely with an excuse, but an actual reason to pull up the drawbridges. Like, nobody at all would, I think, have judged them harshly if very early on they'd said, look, until we figure out what is going on here, no one is coming in and nobody is going out. There were countries that did that. One thinks of Taiwan, one certainly thinks of Australia, where I couldn't go for two and a half years and I'm a citizen. Um, And there's questions to be asked about those approaches as well. But in terms of actual outcomes pertaining to COVID-19, both of those countries, which maximised the advantages of being an island, actually did pretty well. And the United Kingdom chose not to. And New Zealand as well. Mm. And when you have a Prime Minister, A, that is intellectually lazy, he doesn't read the brief. And if you read the brief, then you at least capable of... The, there are some warning signs there. He never, he never left the impression that he takes seriously his job. He takes seriously himself. But not the job himself. It was the it's same. Supp- it's supposed to be the other way around. Yes, but not in the case of Boris <laughs> Johnson. That's what happened when he when he was uh, the foreign secretary, and with the infamous case of basically giving away Nazanin Ansari by saying, "Yes, yeah, she works for us, and she were there to to brief NGOs," which by probably extended by three years uh, or four years her time in jail, because he doesn't read the brief. And the same was with COVID when. When, when some, you know, some of the evidence before, he doesn't understand graphs. All right. He doesn't have a degree in math. He probably didn't have even A-levels in, in, in math. But if you don't do as a serious prime minister, you ask the chief scientist, what does it mean? What does it mean exponential? He decided it's no interest for him. And as you say, it was an opportunity to say, my, my, my statistics, my figures on immigration going to improve the tremendously in the Daily Mail going to love me, if at least for the time of COVID. And even this, he couldn't think two months ahead. I mean, there's been some consolation for me at a very minor personal level in that many, many years ago, I did pitch an article to The Spectator, which he spiked when he was editor. And I can now console myself that he probably never even read it. Um, <laughs> Melissa, just, just finally on this, th- th- thinking, thinking as a journalist, um, how much have you enjoyed the, the pre-inquiry leaking by uh, concerned parties? I was especially tickled by this yarn suggesting that at one point Boris Johnson floated the idea of sending the SAS to raid an AstraZeneca factory in the Netherlands. <laughs> they, you know, the leaks have been more entertaining than... <laughs> I've learned more from them than the inquiry itself. So, um, you know, journalists love leaks. 
Uh, it will doubtless provide us with further bleak hilarity in coming days. But we move along now to Time magazine's annual volunteer stretch in the online stocks. Time's Person of the Year accolade has famously been awarded to some rum customers down the decades. Hitler, Stalin, the Ayatollah Khomeini, Vladimir Putin, Yasser Arafat, Deng Xiaoping twice. Although, in fairness to Time, the idea was always to identify the person who had had the greatest impact on events without necessarily passing moral judgment. Time announced its 2023 Person of the Year earlier today, and it is... It is Taylor Swift, uh, Person of the Year. Uh, Melissa, first of all, is there a case to be made here or does Time magazine just feel like no one's paying them enough attention? (laughs) (laughs) I am not a Swifty, but I appreciate why they chose her. Okay. You know, her her Eras tour um, was six infused $6 billion into the U.S. economy this year. You created thousands of jobs. Mm-hmm. Everywhere she went, a mini economy grew. And, you know, through it all, it's a, it's a young woman who's finding her voice, telling her story, retelling her story, being confident in herself. Um, I think it's great. I think that's, I think she's the the perfect choice. Uh, Yossi, Time Magazine's citation says, over time she has harnessed the power of the media, both traditional and new, to create something wholly unique, a narrative world in which her music is just one piece in an interactive, shape-shifting story. Uh, Again, not wishing to criticise any other hack for having to pad out a page with some desperate flannel, but I'm not actually convinced that means anything. She is obviously as Melissa has been suggesting, a colossally successful pop star. Um, I think, on balance, I suspect she's probably a good thing. I am very much not the target audience, but fine. But nonetheless, person of the year, really? Yes, and consider a considering some of the names you mentioned, probably I will decline to be person by <laughs> by you know if you're in the company of Stalin and Hitler, 1938, the year of Anschluss, he was mm. the person of the year, so not a great company. Just to be clear, though, you are not comparing Taylor Swift to Hitler. No, 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 okay, God forbid. Good, yes, good, but good. I think the kind of being the company, <laughs> their company, it's not a great company. B, I, I'm, I'm not a Swifty, but my actually my, my my wife and daughter are really excited that they're going to see her in. Mm-hmm. Edinburgh and getting the tickets apparently was very, very difficult. So there is an audience. Yes, for what you quoted, there is a bit of a hype there, just a little bit. Even, and I think this is what, again, the Time magazine is, is a lot of the printed mm. magazine, not what it used to be. So you need a bit of a hype and you need some. If you look at all the history from Richard Lindbergh, that was the first in 1927, I think, person of the year. It changed a bit. And I think it's also, again, a reflection of society who are our heroes in the 21st century compared to who were the person that we thought made huge dif- or make huge difference right now. I mean, it, it strikes me that there's an argument, Melissa, and before I embark upon this one, I, I should stress that I am making this up as I go along, so this may make no sense whatsoever. Let's strap ourselves in and see how we go. But there is a case that she has become colossally famous um, at a time when being 
reasonably famous is actually easier than it has ever been. But being genuinely, colossally famous because of that is actually much more difficult. Time magazine citation also compares her to entertainers such as Elvis Presley, Michael Jackson and Madonna. Um, the Elvis one, I think, honestly might be a bit of a reach. The Michael Jackson and Madonna ones... Um, I will allow. But at the time when those three artists were dominant figures, there weren't actually that many famous people. Once you got to a certain level, you could kind of command the stage. To get to where she's got to and stay there, that is a remarkable accomplishment, I think. It is. She is the most famous person in the world right now, I think. You know, in entertainment and music. And she's an, she's become an icon. You know, and I think... Um, in defense of time's decision, if that's what I'm doing, I think if we look at everything that's happened this year, you know, the Ukraine war dragging on, Gaza now, the climate crisis, we've had nothing but bad news. She has been a spark of energy and lightness. And you'll see your, you know, wife and daughter will attest, you know, a distraction. And, and you know, more than that, a distraction from all the bad news that we've been inundated with. And so, you know, I think it's kind of nice to end the year on that note. Well, we will end the program on the note of hypothetically appointing you both in turn very for very brief stints as editor of Time magazine and asking who you would have ennobled as the person of 2023. There's no point in asking me because every year it's just whoever was Geelong Football Club's best and fairest player. But Yossi, who would you have picked this year? Yes, since I'm a supporter of QPR, definitely <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 not something that uh, you know. I, I'm, I'm not so sure. I, I, I'm, I completely agree. It's, it's a kind of, and I don't want to finish the program. It was a bleak year. It and was. It's, 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 it has been, and it ends in a very bleak situation. It's just the topic that we cover today. It's bleak, and you actually, I'm not so sure. I can see one personality that rise above the very low bar. So basically, you're happened. saying Taylor Swift, fine, whatever, let her have it. Uh, yeah, I actually take completely <laughs> Melissa's point. We need some spark. We need something that entertain us and bring a smile. And if it's Taylor, Swift, why not? Uh, Melissa, do you have any better ideas than Taylor Swift? I might have added Beyonce because her tour was pretty amazing too, and she had huge impact this year. So I might uh, have added a, her. There's always next year. Uh, Melissa Fung and Yossi Meckelberg, thank you both for joining us. Finally, on today's Daily, uh, On This Day historical feature recalls the 1956 Olympic Games in Melbourne and a literal bloodbath. In 1945, George Orwell wrote an essay for Tribune entitled The Sporting Spirit. It had its moments, to be sure, it's a George Orwell essay, but overall ranks as one of his far-from-occasional lapses into pious, lemon-sucking priggishness. Aghast at the hoopla surrounding a tour of the United Kingdom by the Soviet football team Dynamo Moscow, Orwell harumphed that serious sport was... Bound up with hatred, jealousy, boastfulness disregard of all rules and sadistic pleasure in witnessing violence. In other words, it is war minus the shooting. As a response to a harmless, well-attended and widely enjoyed schedule of friendly fixtures, this was somewhat melodramatic. 
Had Orwell lived long enough, however, he might have felt vindicated by the events of December 6th, 1956, in the stadium in which the water polo programme of that year's Melbourne Olympics was conducted. In fairness to Orwell's war minus the shooting thesis, the geopolitical grudge match is one of the most compelling spectacles of any international sporting tournament. Whatever game is being played, from archery to wrestling, partisans and neutrals alike will tune in for such clashes as Greece versus Turkey, or South Korea versus Japan, or the United States versus Iran. Usually, however, the players are under strict instruction to behave themselves from officials mindful of the scrutiny. Overt nationalist bellicosity is generally confined to the crowd, where one can still occasionally hear chanting, in the England end, for example, about two world wars and one World Cup, or broadly similar inanities. But when Hungary came up against the Soviet Union at the semi-final stage of the Olympic water polo competition of 1956, it was no pantomime. This is Hungary calling. This is Hungary calling. The last remaining nation. Or to the United Nations. Early this morning, the Soviet troops launched a general attack on Hungary. A few weeks previously, and half a world away, the Soviet Union had invaded Hungary to remove a relatively liberal, reform-minded government. Its Prime Minister, Imre Nagy, had been arrested. He would later be tried in secret and hanged. Thousands of Hungarians had been killed or injured or detained as Red Army tanks chewed up the boulevards of Budapest. The water polo team had been evacuated to Czechoslovakia before departing for Australia. Reigning world champions, the Hungarians had eased through the group stages of the water polo competition. The Soviets had lost their first match to Yugoslavia, but recovered. Even before the Soviet Union's military quashed Hungary's revolution, the water polo teams of the two countries had a history. Earlier in 1956, they'd come to blows at a tournament in Moscow. This time, however, there was national as well as professional pride on the line. Water polo may not seem an obvious arena for the waging of violence, but it turned out that the waves churned up by the thrashing of 14 furious athletes provide cover for no end of skullduggery. Cheered on by a crowd drawn disproportionately from Melbourne's Hungarian community, the Hungarians resolved not to assault the Soviets directly, but to goad them into striking first, providing justification for retaliation. The plan worked. The Soviet players were obliged to make frequent trips to the penalty box, and Hungary ran up a 4-0 lead as insults, kicks and punches were exchanged. The worst was saved for last. With minutes to play and the game lost, the Soviet Union's Valentin Prokopov reared up out of the somewhat pink-tinged water and clouted Hungary's Irvin Zador. As Zador was helped from the pool with blood pouring from a cup beneath his eye which would require eight stitches to close and get him on front pages around the world, the referee called the game early, seeking to avert a riot. 
Zador was still sidelined as his teammates beat Yugoslavia in the final to take gold. He was among the dozens of Hungarian athletes who declined to go home after the Games and spent his life as a swimming coach in California. It is usually difficult to justify violence in any sporting arena, however much the crowd always enjoys a punch-up. But on this day 67 years ago, Hungary's water polo side embraced George Orwell's definition of sport, completing the rare double of an actual and moral victory. And that's all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Yossi Meckelberg and Melissa Fung, and to Chris Chermak at the top of the show. Today's show was produced by Isabella Jewell and researched by Neoma Akwe. Our sound engineer was Steph Chungu. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. Thank you for listening. <laughs>